Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank You that You have spoken Your Word to us through the holy prophets and apostles and that You have revealed Yourself in the Word made flesh, Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank You for the promise of Your Spirit to bless the reading and preaching of Your Word for our edification. Sanctify us now and help us to receive Your Word with gladness and faithfulness. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may not want to admit it, but I know that I know a few of you are what might be called a weather geek. Or maybe you're just, maybe you're not a true weather geek. Maybe you're just fascinated by science. That sounds more respectable, doesn't it? Or maybe, like me, you just really enjoy old-fashioned gadgets. Low-tech gadgets, you know, old-world kind of stuff. If, if, you're, if you fall into any of those categories, you've probably seen or maybe you have an old-fashioned glass barometer. You ever seen one of these glass barometers. It's got, it looks like a globe, some sort of uh, glass container that's closed. It looks like a teapot. It has a spout on the side, and it has colored water inside it. And what it does, of course, like all barometers do, is it measures the atmospheric pressure. It measures how much pressure the atmosphere uh, is exerting. So, when high pressure front signaling the, the, the coming of good weather is moving in, the water in the spout will get pushed back down into the bowl, into the, the globe. When there's a low pressure front coming in, of course, the water in the spout will rise and the water will flow out of the bowl and up the spout. Uh, now, some of us don't need a barometer to tell us what weather fronts are coming in and out because we have one built in to our head or our knee, or our hip, or maybe your whole body, right? Some of us, unfortunately, are gifted with this special technology. But in, for those of you who aren't, um, a barometer is a handy device. Why? Because it allows you to measure something that otherwise you can't really see. You can't uh, really quantify in any meaningful way. But a, a barometer gives you the opportunity, gives you the possibility of measuring what's going on with the weather in real time and even making predictions about the future. Now, of course, the analogy certainly is not perfect. But the way that a barometer measures atmospheric pressure is somewhat similar to the way that our emotions give us insight into the condition of our souls. For example, feelings of anger, contempt, anxiety, fear, apathy, or even despair signal that something is wrong. Something is not right. Everything is not as it should be. But likewise, even the more positive emotions can give us some insight uh, into uh, the condition of our heart. If we feel happy uh, for a season, 
it might do us good to, to question why do we feel so happy right now? What is the source of our feeling of happiness and contentment? But the trouble with emotions, of course, is that they're notoriously unreliable. They're often inaccurate. Our emotions, like our reason, like our will, like every other part of our being, has been damaged and tainted by sin. There are no, our emotions are no longer totally trustworthy or righteous. And so, unlike a weather barometer, which really can't lie, our emotions often deceive us. They can lie to us about what's really going on. They can hold out false hope. In fact, we can actually become quite skilled at using our emotions to deceive ourselves. We can use certain emotions to mask other emotions and we end up in a muddled mess. Now, of course, because our, because our society generally ignores the biblical teaching about the fall of man and the effects of sin, many people in our culture live by how they feel. They, they follow their emotions into all sorts of sin and destruction. Unfortunately, emotionalism has also infected many churches in our culture, and the effects have also been very devastating. If we deny the biblical doctrine of sin and follow our own emotions and desires, what we end up with is a religion that's basically a self-help club that only exists to help people feel, feel better about themselves. There's actually a, a phrase that researchers have coined to describe this sort of religion that has come to be so prominent in many churches in American society. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's all about helping people feel better about themselves. Now, in reaction to these trends in the wider culture and in the church, some Christians have decided that emotions are inherently bad, that godly people should ignore their emotions, seek to live above them, seek to insulate themselves from their own emotions. You can see this in certain churches where it's sort of a stoic piety. You keep a stiff upper lip. It's sort of a, it's really basically Gnostic, but it's usually very rationalistic, very overly intellectual as if our reason was not damaged and fallen too. But this position, rejecting emotions as inherently flawed and to be avoided and ignored, but this position is not an option for biblical Christians either. Emotions are part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now it's certainly something of a mystery, but God is Personal. God is a personal being, three-personal, tri-personal being to be exact. And God, in some mysterious way, has feelings. You can see this all throughout the Bible, but of course, the clearest example is in the person of Jesus, recorded for us in the Gospels. When God the Son took on a human nature... He was not incarnated as an unfeeling, unemotional robot. 
Jesus experienced the, the complete range of human emotions and was still untainted by sin. He experienced pure, unadulterated, untainted emotions. And He shows us what life without sin looks like. And He confirms to us that there is indeed such a thing as holy emotions. Consider just a few examples. Jesus got angry. He got fighting mad, literally. His anger, though, was untainted by bitterness or resentment or a desire for revenge like like our anger so often is. Have you ever thought, by the way, what was what was going through Jesus' mind when He was making the bullwhip that He would later use to clear out the temple? That's an interesting thought experiment. But think also of other emotions that Jesus exhibits. He wept and He mourned on numerous occasions. He wept openly over the death of His close friend Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He was grieved severely that night before He was arrested as He prayed to His Father in the garden. But His grief and sorrow were not mixed with anxiety, despair, or faithlessness as our grief and sorrow so often are. How did Jesus cultivate these righteous emotions? Even though He was certainly tempted to resentment, rage, anxiety, despair, and all sorts of sinful emotions, how did He cultivate these holy emotions? Well, without a doubt, the Psalms were one of the most significant influences in shaping Jesus' desires and emotions as He grew as a young man in Nazareth. The Psalter shows us how to express the full range of human emotion to God in prayer. But it also has the unique ability to cultivate righteous emotions and to conform our hearts to the image of Christ so that our emotions mirror the emotions of Jesus Himself. In his preface to his commentary on the Psalms, John Calvin had this to say about these two important aspects of the Psalter. Listen to what Calvin says. He says, I have been accustomed to call this book, the Psalter, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, a guidebook to all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. The other parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God enjoined His servants to announce to us. But here, the prophets themselves, seeing they are exhibited to us as speaking to God and laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections, call, or rather draw, each of us to the examination of Himself in particulars 
in order that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject and of the many vices with which we abound may remain concealed. Listen to this. Catch this. Genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first from a sense of our need and next from faith in the promises of God. It is by perusing these inspired compositions that men will be most effectually awakened to a sense of their maladies and at the same time instructed in seeking remedies for their cure. If you think Calvin was just a soft, emotional romantic, he was not the only great theologian to recognize these two important functions of the Psalter. The early church pastor Athanasius also taught the great value of the Psalms for expressing, diagnosing our heart and cultivating our heart, cultivating righteous emotions. Listen to what Athanasius said about the Psalter in a a letter that he wrote on how to interpret the Psalms. He says, the rest of the Bible teaches us about God's law and the prophets and kings and holy men. But in the Psalter, in addition to all these things, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in the Psalter all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. Moreover, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book you can select a form of words to fit it so that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but learn the way to remedy your ill. The Psalter is a mirror that shows us the state of our own heart, that sorts out the confusion of our sinful emotions, but the Psalter is also a tool that God uses to shape our hearts and to cultivate righteous emotions. In a culture that is desperately confused about the heart's desires and emotions, it is imperative that we as God's people submit ourselves to the authoritative Word of God, especially the Psalter, so that we can accurately diagnose our own sin and find the cure for all the maladies that plague our souls. This is the only way that we will become fully human. This is the, the one of the most important ways that we will grow up to maturity in Christ. And so I, I just want to briefly consider a few different aspects of these connected truths. The Psalms diagnose our hearts, but the the Psalter also shapes our hearts. And one of the ways the Psalter does this is by providing us with a glimpse into the souls, into the the hearts of divinely inspired men of God, which likewise serves as a mirror for our own hearts. When we get lost in the confusion of our own emotions, as we so often do, the Psalms help us sort out the mess and to name the various emotions that we experience. 
when we read the Psalms, we are able to... It's like a guidebook of the soul, like Calvin says, an anatomy of the soul. If you're, uh, if you have an instruction manual or a textbook that's telling you, an anatomy textbook will give you a way to name the different parts of the body, and a Lego manual will give you a way to find out what pieces need to go where. Uh, a manual for your car won't tell you much, uh, but if you buy the really expensive big one, it'll tell you every piece to every part. Uh, of your car. And the Psalter allows us to sort out the mess. It's as, it's as sometimes as if somebody took all the parts to a car and just dumped them uh, in a big garage. And you, you're going to need some way to sort that mess out. The Psalter helps us to do that for our own souls. So when, we're, uh, when we experience a certain emotion, when we feel a certain way, we're able to say, oh yeah, that's, that's bitterness right there or wait a minute that that smells like that smells like anxiety right there we are able to name uh, the things that we feel and deal with them appropriately and when we have the nagging sense that something is not right the psalms pierce the fog with the light of god's word so sometimes we we talk about being in a funk or being just feeling kind of off. Why do I have such a short fuse lately? Well, the Psalter can, can help you figure that out. Why am I so discouraged lately? I just kind of feel down. The Psalter has psalms in it that will help you pray through that particular emotion and help you cultivate holy emotions. The psalms enable us to understand our emotions, but more than that, they give us divinely inspired prayers with which to express ourselves to God. If you if you've spent any time reading the Psalms, you've come across you've come across a few Psalms that you did a double take on when you first read it. What? That that's in the Bible? Somebody actually said that? Wait a minute, that can't be right. This has got to be a faulty translation, right? The Psalms give us freedom to speak to God honestly in ways that we otherwise would not. Our uh, enlightened, uh, uh, intellectual, informed sensibilities uh, have taken a lot of the uh, honesty uh, out, of our, out of our prayers. We don't uh, feel comfortable saying hard things to God. We don't feel comfortable uh, being praying things that might come across a little bit mean. That sounds well. That really sounds sort of impolite. But the Psalms train us in holy emotions. They give us words to express to God things that we otherwise would not feel free to express or would not even think God wanted to hear. But on the other hand. While they give us freedom to talk to God honestly, they also pull us up short when we indulge ourselves in unrighteous thoughts and emotions. I got news for you. If you're looking for a good psalm to sponsor your next pity party, you're not going to find one. You're not going to find one. See, we go looking in the Psalter uh, to express our own 
sinful emotions, because, right, it's all about being honest with God. But the Psalter won't let us get away with that. If you think you've found one, you start reading, and lo and behold, by the end of that lament psalm, it's all turned into repentance and thanksgiving and, and praise to God. Wait a minute. That just, that just killed my pity party right there. If you're looking for a psalm that will help you unleash your vindictiveness on someone else, a good, juicy, impregatory psalm that you can use to smash that person in the dust, you might find some words that stick in your throat when it's time to assert your own innocence and purity of heart. If you feel like telling God off because you don't agree with the way He's running the universe, surely the Psalms will give me something bold and and, uh, very brash to say to God. It is highly likely that you will run into the sharp end of a Psalm that is all about the majesty and sovereignty of God. You see, emotions should drive us to prayer. Emotions are like the check engine light that comes on uh, in your car and you say, uh-oh, I need to, I need to go by the auto zone or wherever and get them to, to see what's wrong with my car. Emotions should drive us to prayer, but our emotions are ultimately subject to God's authoritative word. God's word controls our emotions and tells us what's legitimate and what's not, what's righteous and what is unrighteous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer explained it this way. He said, It does not depend, therefore, on whether the Psalms express adequately that which we feel at a given moment in our heart. doesn't matter. It does not depend. If we are to pray aright, perhaps it is quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. The richness of the Word of God ought to determine our prayer, not the poverty of our own heart. More often than not, the Psalms teach us that our desires and emotions are not too strong, but too weak. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our petty anger and resentment that consumes our lives at times looks ridiculous when the Psalms show us what it means to hate sin with a holy hatred. That's what the Apostle Paul was speaking about. Be angry and do not sin. That's a command. Be angry. Don't sin. There is an anger, a pure and righteous anger, a hatred of sin that is far stronger than all the petty anger that we might harbor in our heart 
toward a brother or sister in Christ. Likewise, our fears and anxieties that cripple us, that paralyze us, are robbed of their power. They're stripped of all their strength when we learn from the Psalter what it is to fear God with a holy, righteous fear. When we learn that God is a holy terror and He is to be feared and none other, that begins to pry off the tentacles of fear and anxiety that have gripped our hearts, that have paralyzed us. Also, our sinful jealousy, our selfish desires that suffocate our own hearts and and suffocate uh, those closest to us, those things lose all their power. They are totally deflated when the Psalms confront us with the holy jealousy of God that relentlessly fights for His wayward people. And God's Word, the Psalms, cultivate within us that holy zeal, that jealousy for God's covenant and for His people. The Psalms transform our hopelessness and despair by exposing our idolatry and teaching us to put our trust in our trustworthy God. The Psalter is much more than an anatomy of the soul. It is much more than a textbook of human emotions or even a mirror in which we can learn more about ourselves. But it is not less than that. We need to get the Psalms into us and we need to get into the Psalms. And for one simple yet profound reason. In addition to these other reasons, there is one ultimate and primary reason that we need to get into the Psalms and we need to get the Psalms into us. It's simply because the Psalms force us to wrestle with God. The Psalms call us, drag us, kicking and screaming to prayer. To confront God face to face and have it out with God. The Psalms yank us out of our isolation, out of our self-deception, out of our blissful ignorance, and they bring us face to face with God Himself. The Psalms teach us that every affliction, every enemy, every threat, every joy, every experience of human life brings us ultimately face to face with our sovereign God. God is the one with whom we must deal and the one with whom we must come to terms. We see this pattern in numerous examples all throughout the Scriptures. But the clearest example, of course, is found in the life of David, who wrote at least half of the Psalms. We know more about David's life than basically any other biblical character. His life is literally an open book. Actually, several open books in the Bible. And the Psalms give us the most intimate picture of his life. Now, if you know anything about the life of David, you know 
that his life was filled, literally filled with people who opposed him, who hated him, who tried to kill him, who betrayed him, who attacked him, who slandered him. Every possible uh, bad thing you could imagine, David's life was filled by it. His life was one narrow escape after another. His brothers, when he was younger, despised him, hated him. Saul tried numerous times to kill him. Goliath, of course, would have loved uh, to, to rip David to shreds and feed him to the dogs. Uh, his own sons tried to kill him. His his wife, one of at least one of his wives, was uh, not very pleased with him. His, the commanders of his armies, his closest advisors, betrayed him. You, the list goes on and on and on. We also know that in addition to these people who made David's life difficult, David made some pretty bad choices. His life was marred by some pretty massive sins. Sins that affected other people and the entire nation. He committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and then he murdered Uriah to try to cover it up. He was filled with pride and he took a census uh, of the land. He failed to train and, and discipline his sons and, and rule over his own family well, and it turned into a big mess of his sons trying to steal away the throne. They murdered each other. It, it, he, it was just bad. He, he really messed up on some things. But we also know that David's life was marked by amazing victories and momentous celebrations. Who could forget David and Goliath, right? He goes out and he sticks it to the Gentile who's uh, defaming the name of the Lord and brings this great victory for the people. And his life was one great victory after another. He was a military genius. God was with him. He was filled with the Spirit. He was a talented singer and poet. He led the people in worship. He brought the tabernacle of God and established uh, the tabernacle of David in Jerusalem. And all of these things uh, mark the high points of his life. And so what is what is the point? What's the lesson for us? Because we see psalms for every one of these types of situations. We see psalms for all of these sorts of occasions. And what these psalms of David and the psalms of the other psalmists show us is that in every situation, David ultimately had to acknowledge God as the sovereign ruler of his life, the giver of every good gift, the loving Father who sent trials and afflictions to teach him wisdom and maturity, and the holy God against whom he had sinned. Every situation that David faced, every mistake he made, every time he sinned, every victory he won, he knew that it was ultimately God that he was accountable to. It was ultimately God who was the source of his blessings, the source of his trials, the Father who loved him. And so despite David's many failings, despite his mistakes and shortcomings, he is described in Scripture as the man after God's own heart because his heart was always 
attentive to God. His heart was always attentive to the Lord. The Psalms teach us to cultivate that same type of heart that is always attentive, always aware that God is the one with whom we must deal. The Psalms teach us to wrestle with God in prayer. Not to try to live some sort of stoic life where we keep a stiff upper lip, but where we deal with God and we learn to deal with our own heart. And so the Psalms are one of the primary instruments for training us to be men and women after God's own heart. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. We especially thank You for the Psalter and its inspired prayers that teach us to pray, that give us words to speak with You face to face, that teach us wisdom, that train us in maturity, and that help us sort out the mess of our own hearts that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Give us grace. Help us to be diligent and disciplined in getting into the Psalms and getting the Psalms into us that we might indeed pray the prayers of Christ with Him and be formed into the image of Christ. It's for His sake and in His name that we pray. Amen.